1: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Davida Goldberg. Today we're going to be talking to Professor Chad Allen Goldberg, Professor of Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, about his new book, Modernity and the Jews in Western Social Thought, which was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you so much for being here, Professor Goldberg.
0: Thanks for having me. It's, uh, uh, it's really a pleasure to be
1: here. Great. So the book that we're um, looking at today is your most recent book, and it's about how sociologists use Jews as an object for social thought. So what you do is you look in, you take as case studies, prominent social thinkers from Marx to Robert Park in America, and you divide the book into chapters based on region. Germany, there's a chapter on Germany, a chapter on France, and a chapter on America. And what I notice is that these regions could also have been, instead of distinguished by country, it might have also been distinguished by some of the main themes that come up within those different countries, although they do overlap. So in Germany, you talk about the theme, or in France, you talk about the themes of nationhood and citizenship. In Germany, you talk about themes such as economics and power and how they get refracted through thinking and talking about Jews. And in America, you talk about uh, the themes of urbanization and assimilation. And You argue that sociologists facing these challenging ideas that are questions that arise essentially from modernity find that thinking about Jews and about the role of Jews in history and in European society, they find that that's a particularly fruitful entry point into theorizing about these themes of modernity themes such as, as I've said, nationhood, capitalism, social cohesion, global politics, urbanization, and of course, alienation, which is the kind of emotional thread that runs um, underneath all of that. Um, So I do want to get right into the content. But uh, before we do that, I'm really interested in who you are and how Um, you got to the point where you're writing a book about modernity and the Jews.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, So I, I, um, uh, you know, I've been teaching at the university of Wisconsin for uh, I guess more than 15 years. And, um, uh, I am, a, you know, I was trained as a sociologist um, uh, with specialties in, in political sociology and uh, historical sociology and social theory. And uh, when I came to Wisconsin, I uh, affiliated with the Center for Jewish Studies there uh, pretty early on. Um, I had the scholarly interest and, and uh, the work that was being done there. And I got to know some of my colleagues there. Uh, but uh, for several years, I was, um, you know, I was mostly teaching. Uh, I, I had a, a sociology course that was cross-listed with Jewish studies, uh, that was about Jewish emancipation in Europe. And um, uh, after my, after I'd written my first book, which really didn't have any Jewish studies content. Uh, I, I started to think uh, more and more seriously about uh, doing a book uh, that, that did connect with Jewish studies. And the impetus for that was um, a conference that I was invited to attend um, back in 2008 in um, uh, the UK, at the University of Manchester There was a conference on anti-Semitism and the emergence of sociological theory. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I I never really seriously thought about the relationship between those things and what the relationship would be. And I thought, well, I can write a paper about this and this would be uh, really a lot of fun to do. And I did. I wrote a paper. I went. I, I presented the paper. And the conference was uh, just really terrific. It was fascinating. There was, there was a lot of uh, really amazing work that was being presented and discussed there. And then as sometimes happens. Um, you know, I, I thought this would be a little side project uh, conference paper that might turn into a journal article. And that would be it. But as sometimes happens, you know, little side projects become bigger projects. And um, I started to think, well, you know, there's, there's a lot more to do here. And uh, before I knew it, uh, I was working on a book.
1: So this is your second book because your first book was about um, American relief workers, that Yeah.
0: Right? So uh, my first book was um, uh, was really about American political development and the U.S. welfare state. And uh, what that book looked at was uh, struggles over the status and rights of um, uh, of, of welfare state claimants, um, uh, WPA workers in the 1930s, workfare workers in New York City in the 1990s. Uh, so that was a, a in some ways a, a very different kind of book, although – what I tell people is that there are themes that connect um, the two books, um, the, the, the themes of citizenship and uh, civil inclusion and exclusion, for example.
1: Mm-hmm. So when you were um, studying for that book, and as a sociologist, and it's interesting to me that you say that you it didn't occur to you to think about the status of Jew, Jews in their thought, because in this book, you you seem to, you are arguing that, the status of Jews in sociology was quite central and really explicit and kind of yeah,
0: unmissable that, that is true it took me a while to get there though uh, and um and, and it was something that uh I, I was kind of slow to come to that realization uh, i i um, have taught uh social theory for years and uh, in particular i you know i teach the sociological classics uh so um Karl marx Max weber emil durkheim you know the guys that were are, are considered the precursors or the founders of sociology as a discipline and um, particularly in connection with this conference I mentioned, I started to think about the fact that um, there's actually quite a lot about Jews and Judaism and the writings of uh, these figures. And uh, and so that really got me to thinking about, well, why is that? Uh, why uh, is this a group that these these um, these key social thinkers spend a lot of time uh, thinking about, talking about, discussing and and, you know, what does that what does that thinking do for them? Uh, you know, what what is what is the thinking about this group yeah. do
1: for them? Right. You have a great um, line that you use as a heading for one of your last sections in the book um, that Jews are good to think with, and I think you've you kick off from Claude Levi Strauss with that line. So, and you argue that for European sociologists, Jews have been good to think with. So I, I've been wondering why the Jews. Um, Why do they come to have this symbolic position in the European imagination? Uh, I
0: I think that's a great question. That's one of the questions that I was concerned with in the book. And I I think there are really sort of two ways that you can try to answer a question like that. So uh, very often uh, what people do when they when they're thinking about that that question um, is to say, well, it must be something about the Jews. It must be something about um, this particular group. Uh, And that could be any number of things. Right. It could be. Um, the concentration of Jews in um, uh, in uh, commerce and in finance in certain parts of the world at certain times uh, that led uh, social thinkers who were concerned with the development of modern capitalism to focus on Jews. Right, so it could be something about Jews as a group. Uh, but I, what I took from Mm -hmm. Levi Strauss and why I thought Levi Strauss was, uh, somebody worth turning back to uh, is, uh, funny enough, his, his, his classic work on totemism. And so there's a kind of parallel here. You can say, you know, why does a, why does a clan pick a certain animal as its totem? And so you might be tempted to say, well, it's something about the animal, um, that there's some connection between the animal and the clan, but Levi Strauss said, well, that's the wrong way to think about it, right? We should think not in terms of, um, uh, of, of, of objects, but in terms of relationships. And so uh, his idea was that um, uh, these, these animals are good to think, not because of anything having to do with the animal, but because of the relations among them, uh, which then become a kind of code for thinking about the relations among kinship groups. And so I thought in the same way, if we want to understand why uh, Jews become sort of central objects of social thought and modern social thought, what we should really think about is the relationship, the historical relationship between uh, Jews and Gentiles and in the European context, that would mean Jews and Christians, and uh, how that historical relationship then becomes uh, a way for um, elucidating uh, all kinds of dualisms and social thought um, that that have structured social thought uh, for a long, long time. Uh, dualisms uh, like urban and rural, uh, dualisms uh, like traditional and modern, dualisms like, um, uh, 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 um, um, uh, I would say, um, feudalism and capitalism say so 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 there are culture and civilization there 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 are a variety of dualisms that we find uh, in modern social thought where I think there's a kind of historical basis there uh, in the relationship between Jews and Christians so in in that sense um, Jews become good to think uh, and I think that's a that's very much in keeping with how Levi Strauss Mm -hmm. uh, intended that phrase what he meant by that phrase.
1: This also reminded me of Victor Turner's idea of the key symbol, where a symbol is not actually something that contains meaning necessarily, but rather a symbol is a lightning rod for meaning. So that the more multivalent and condensed the symbol, the more it can stand for both sides of a polarity, the more essential and key the symbol might be. So, for example, you show how Jews work both as symbols of backwardness and traditionalism, as well as symbols of modernity in the European imagination, and you even create this great graphic to explain how this contradiction could be even further complicated, uh, complicated, with backwardness and modernity each being potentially viewed as either positive or negative. So it's this squadron that you sketch out for us, and you actually print as such a couple times in the book. Um, so to bring us back to some of the specifics here, let's start talking about Emil Durkheim's contribution and how. His thought may be understood as a reaction to the way the reactionary right in 19th and early 20th century France positioned and evaluated the Jews. So I'm wondering if you could tell us how Durkheim fits into that quadrant and how that reactionary French right fits into that quadrant. um, how durkheim is actually maybe reacting and his analysis is shaped by sure,
0: yeah. that uh, so relationship the, the of ideas. you know the first uh, substantive chapter is about uh, emile durkheim the the you know the father of french sociology the french school of sociology and um, uh, of course one of the ways i think that um, we would want to understand somebody like durkheim that we would understand uh, anything in the history of sociology is to contextualize it um, there's been lots of work that has uh, tried to contextualize durkheim's thinking in relation to all kinds of different uh, things in his social and historical milieu. Uh, but I thought that uh, there hadn't really been enough attention to antisemitism as part of his historical milieu. People know, of course, that um, he was a Dreyfusard. He was somebody who took a, an active role in the Dreyfus Affair in France. He was uh, even somebody who wrote a little bit about antisemitism. He sort of wrote a brief sketch of what a, what a sort of uh, sociology of antisemitism might look like or how it might proceed um so uh, so so people know that aspect about him but i didn't think that it had been uh it had it had gone far enough that's to say i didn't think that uh, there had been enough work that tried to show that that some of the uh, central features of his sociological thinking uh were shaped by his uh, reaction against uh, French anti-Semitism, and so what I try to do there is um, uh, really distinguish some different currents in French anti-Semitism in Third Republic France. Uh, one kind of current that uh, you find on the right, uh, there's actually a couple currents that you find on the right. So, so one is a kind of um, very traditional uh, Catholic anti-Judaism. Uh, there's another current which is not exactly the same, which is
1: the traditional anti-Catholic or the traditional Catholic anti-Semitism that uh, how do they depict sure. the yeah, Jews? so, so, so that's, kind you know, of so, so Jews end up discourse. getting depicted
0: there, interestingly enough, uh, as uh, revolutionaries. And so there is this uh, identification of Jews with the French Revolution. Uh, this is a this is a current of thought which is reactionary. So it's um, it, it is uh, it, quite critical and quite opposed to the French Revolution and the legacies of the French Revolution, including the revolution's anti clericalism, uh, and and Jews end up getting um, depicted as both uh, agents who are somehow behind the scenes orchestrating the revolution making sure that it happens and or uh, key beneficiaries of the revolution uh, and uh, so Durkheim has something to say about that and um, and in Durkheim's own writings about Jews uh, he uh, he, he depicts Jews in a quite different way. Um, uh, so if you would say that, that Jews are sort of the vanguard of the French Revolution, this would make Jews, you know, a kind of modernist avant-garde, right? And uh, Durkheim wants to say that in some ways, um, Jews are much more traditionalistic and uh, and and sort of backward looking in certain respects than the, the tendencies that the French Revolution set in motion in French society. He doesn't see that as wholly a bad thing. He's, I think he's, he's, he's uh, ambivalent about it. Um, in some ways, it's it's very good. So he writes about, for example, how the the tight connections, the the, the close solidarity within the Jewish communities communities in France um, actually is a kind of um, provides a kind of protection against high suicide rates. So the suicide rates among Protestants are much much higher. Uh, Catholics it's a little bit lower. He finds that they're lowest among Jews. Right. So in this respect, um, having this kind of traditionalistic sort of solidarity is uh, is not a bad thing for him. But he is ultimately uh, somebody who.
1: So, in other words, is he trying to? Is was he trying to, in a sense, say, "Hey, uh, reactionaries, you're wrong about the Jews. They're not that modern. In fact, they are as backwards as the people that you like and admire. They're they're the, yeah, they're just that's as right." I mean, he's, he's sort of, uh, as the he sort of he sort of turns their own, their own
0: their uh, own logic uh, on its head, or he turns it on them, uh, and um, uh, and I think you put it very well. Um, he, he's also engaged at the same time in a kind of rethinking about the French Revolution itself. So he he um, he takes issue with their understanding of the revolution uh, as a as an anti-religious event. And he ends up sort of describing it as in some ways a quintessentially religious event. Uh, so this is yet another way in which he sort of um, inverts their thinking and, and sort of turns their own uh, attacks on the revolution and, and on Jews back up back upon them.
1: Yeah, and it does seem then to relate uh, to that part of the famous parts of his sociology, which are not necessarily things that people think about um, as having to do with Jews or anti Semitism, which is the place of religion in Durkheim's thinking. So I'm wondering whether you would say that maybe some of this, um, some of the defensive ideas that Durkheim had about Jews, might have led to some of his ideas about how society yeah. itself is. Um, A religious. I I think
0: so. Uh, I mean, some people have suggested that um, that that sort of Jews play an important part in Durkheim's thinking early on, but by the time he writes his masterpiece about religion, the elementary forms of religious life, uh, he's he's shifted. Now he's not talking about Jews. He's you know this is a book about Australian Aborigines, right? And so some people say, well, he's he's moved on to a different group. In some ways, that's true, but um, I don't think uh, the the sort of Jewish reference ever drops out of his thinking. And in fact, you you find it in um, Elementary Forms of Religious Life. Uh, He has this sort of interesting passage toward the end of the book where he says – um, you know, from a from a kind of sociological perspective, what's the what is the essential difference between a, a, a Pesach Seder and a Bastille Day and, uh, you know, and and uh, and at a Christian holiday, It says, you know, from a sociological perspective, they all are um, are uh, analogous in certain ways. And so uh, in in that moment, he is he's really sort of thinking about the French Revolution as a as a kind of uh, religious event at an event that's not so different um, from what elsewhere he would describe as a, you know, a kind of traditionalistic uh, religious practices among Jews. Right.
1: And that, that becomes a powerful answer to the reactionary. I rights, think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a, um, a threat. A sense it it threat. is
0: his answer in a exactly. way. One of his answers is to say that mm-hmm. um, this, this, re- this revolution, which they hate because they see it as anti-clerical and secularizing and irreligious and even anti-religious um, turns out to be um, at bottom um, much more religious than they than they think, uh, and um, uh, in fact, he he ends up sort of arguing that in a way, modern societies need religion to bind them together, um, but it's not the it's not the sort of traditional Catholicism that uh, that that uh, certain elements of the French right have in mind but a new kind of civil religion uh, that comes out of the experience of the revolution. And I try to argue that the civil religion is not a, that he doesn't see it as a, an alternative, a substitute uh, for uh, Judaism or for Christianity say, but it is a kind of uh, overarching um, uh, uh, creed that allows people to maintain their particularistic attachments um, while at the same time, uh, being integrated through this this kind of broader umbrella civil religion uh, that the revolution gives rise to. Um,
1: so it's interesting though that in that argument, Durkheim ends up portraying Jews as traditionalists quite, and that would play into a. a- the opposite, the polar opposite anti-Semitic trope, the coming from the radical French left, you you have a nice little way of kind of creating that binary, reactionaries versus radicals, and both had their different mm-hmm. anti-Semitic tropes. And and the Jews turn out to be pretty much polar opposites to themselves. Um, and Zerkheim in one way seems to be expressing the same idea of jews as the anti-semitic radical left would explain that it would express that they're backwards that they're archaic that they're tribalist
0: yeah um, uh, that's a that's a great how question so vision I, I, of at jews first glance it does seem that, that they share something in common in, in terms of how they depict and how they describe jews uh but uh, i would say the the real difference lies in uh how they uh how they conceptualize, how they understand the revolution, and how they understand um, the unfinished work of the revolution. So, uh, so, so. In, in this chapter, I write about uh, currents of anti-Semitism on the French left as well as on the French right, uh, and um, and and these uh, these anti-Semitic currents on the left, Jews are understood as. In um, one way or another, uh, not not as architects or beneficiaries of the revolution but inaries who um, are trying to stand in the way of um, finishing the work of the revolution uh, or who are um, working against the 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 emancipatory aims of the revolution and uh, and and durkheim uh, is engaging with the thought of some of these radicals in a very direct way and trying to uh, get them to understand that. Uh, the work that in a way he agrees with them that the revolution is unfinished work, but he disagrees very strongly with them about what it would mean to finish the work of the revolution. And he insists that they, um, uh, they, they should avoid scapegoating certain groups. Number one, number two, they should, um, they should not think about uh, continuing the work of the revolution in a purely negative or or, or destructive sense. So not just a, a tearing down, um, the, the uh, old institutions, but uh, building up something new, uh, really reconstructing society in a positive way. And uh, he insists that that has to be done in a way um, that includes everyone, that, that has, um, that's, that's more expansive, more inclusive, and uh, not in a way that ends up um, uh, excluding uh, or shutting out certain groups from French society.
1: It's interesting because it um, skipping ahead in the book as you go through the French tradition and the German tradition and the American tradition, it seems like the Americans that you um, spend time with here end up with a very much a similar conclusion, as you argue, at least, uh, to Durkheim, that um, that there's, the, the, there's kind of um, a – there's negative and positive aspects that the Jews can – and the Jews can – portray both the negative and positive aspects. And yet the way forward is uh, something like what Durkheim said. So I wonder, uh, you know, skipping ahead of, uh, a decade or so, if you want to, um, or less than a decade, um, uh, uh, tell us what do you think about that? Do you think that the Americans yeah, I, came um, up with a similar solution about yeah, I, I, how, I the, so. I, how I, democracy needs I, to continue the, the, the to shape itself? The on
0: the American sociological tradition is really a chapter that focuses, as you said, on on uh, William Thomas and Robert Park and and uh, what is sometimes called the Chicago School of Sociology. It's it's um, and it's sort of first incarnation in the early. And um, they were very much concerned with um, some of the same things that their European counterparts were concerned with. Um, They were concerned with uh, how modernization, as they understood it, was a process that was um, maybe loosening social ties, loosening social bonds leaving people um, disorganized. That was the word that they used. Um, And in some of their work, so in the the great sort of classic of American sociology, the Polish peasant uh, in Europe and America, a book that uh, really in some ways came to define early American sociology, um, Uh, Even though the book, it's it's called The Polish Peasant, but there's actually a lot about Jews in the book. And uh, Jews are depicted in that book um, uh, as as disorganizers of others. Uh, Through their commercial and migratory activities, um, they become disorganizers of uh, the the traditional way of life of Polish peasants. What's interesting to me is that uh, when those same sociologists turn their attention to Jewish immigrants in New York uh, and other cities in the United States, um, they saw Jews in a very different way—not as disorganizers of others, but as sort of pioneers in this work of social reconstruction. Uh, they were, uh, in particular, they were really impressed with the Jewish Kahila of New York, um, this this early attempt at um, community organization in New York City in the early 20th century. Uh, they were very impressed with that and and saw that. Um, uh, in a very positive light, not as uh, simply shoring up a kind of a way of life or a, a kind of solidarity from the past, but really, in a way, reinventing uh, Jewish communal life in a way that was better adapted to the to the needs of Jewish immigrants in the early 20th century and to modern conditions. And, and essentially, they thought, well, if Jewish immigrants can do that in New York City, uh, maybe the country as a whole can can start to think about how to do that on a, on a much broader scale.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because it seems like there's there is a kind of ambivalence, but it then leans towards um, that positive message. That first they depict Jews as the marginal man, the quintessential marginal man, who who in a sense is a an s h i t disturber goes in there and and also in themselves maybe has that self consciousness that is you know essential alienation. Um, but then at the end um, you seem to be suggesting that they're not. That they're not then promoting some kind of assimilation, or, um, or you know, some of the Germans promoted you know, just separation. They believe that these Jews who come in with their understanding of diversity and building up communities can be one of many other communities that help mm-hmm. to collaborate. Yeah, I, I
0: think so. And this is, this is uh, one, one place two, where I'm trying to sense,
1: uh to, finish to the work of the revolution offer to a new and different interpretation
0: time. of that early Chicago School of Sociology. They're very often seen as just just flat out assimilationists that they, you know, their idea is, well, Jewish immigrants and other uh, European immigrants come to America in the early twentieth century. They're interested in uh, how to expedite and facilitate the assimilation of those immigrants to an existing uh, Anglo-American culture that's that's already in place here. And uh, I actually think that's a misreading of, um, of those authors. And I think if they're read more carefully, um, although they do use this term assimilation, they use it quite a bit. Um, what I try to argue is that uh, what they really have in mind is not that immigrants should uh, adopt all of the the beliefs, ideas, customs of of, um, the people who are already here, the native-born Americans, uh, but they're really talking about how to integrate people into a democratic public uh, such that they can be in communication with each other about uh, solving problems of common concern. And when they talk about assimilation, I think that's ultimately what they really have in mind.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing because I um I wouldn't have understood that without this book, but it, it's you give some really good evidence for this idea that. Um, you say Thomas Park and Miller expected the immigrant to contribute to as well as share a fund of knowledge, experience, sentiments, and ideas yeah, common and,
0: to the whole community. Yeah, and this idea of the so, marginal man, was a, uh, was a, a very influential comes in concept in American It comes from Robert Park. It's an idea that he sort of borrows in a way from German sociology, from Zimmel in particular. But they, they, you're right that they, they give it a, a really different twist in the American context because. Um, The marginal man, the person who is sort of between two worlds without ever really fitting in uh, fully in either of them, um, becomes not just this sort of unhappy, miserable, alienated person, but becomes at least potentially a source of creativity and creative reorganization. And uh, that's, I I think, something that is um, developed much more by these American sociologists than uh, you really see in, in the German context.
1: Yeah, so maybe we can go back a little bit and talk about right. this German context because it seemed like the Americans also many of them were direct students of um Simmel and uh, I think and, and readers of Sombart, as you mentioned. Um Yeah, so in a way, so what um, I try to suggest in the, in the book, German context uh, was so, so, was so there as, as you laid out at the beginning there book different binaries organized in German terms context. of national
0: sociological traditions, French, German and American. Uh, but for each of these uh, each of these chapters uh, I'm also focusing on a different um, a different metaphor for what it means to be modern. So in the French case, uh, as you said, I'm really focusing on democracy and citizenship in the revolution. Um, in the American case, it's about uh, immigration and the city or urbanism, uh, urbanization. And uh, in the German case, of course, uh, a lot of these thinkers are writing about and devoting a lot of time and and and, and thought to um the the development the emergence, the origins, and development of of modern industrial capitalism and uh, so so there in interesting ways uh, again, Jews get positioned as either sort of by some of these thinkers as as sort of backwards so as uh, precursors or not precursors excuse me as as representatives um, of, a, uh, of a, of a of a of a uh, more primitive kind of capitalism. So Max Weber talks about Jews as, as sort, of a, uh, 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 sort of a kind of pariah capitalism, um, which is quite different from what he sees as the main features of modern rational capitalism. Uh, but then other thinkers see Jews Jews as, as of course, the the uh, the vanguard uh, that is bringing uh, all those all those elements of modern rational capitalism to the fore uh, in European societies. So there too, you see um, Jews getting um described portrayed in um in inconsistent ways uh and um uh and and being placed at at, at different poles in this uh if we can, if we can think of this sort of uh, uh, two by two schema that you that you described at the beginning.
1: Yeah, interestingly, you um, you have this two by two sc- schema, and we have uh, you argue that Marx kind of occupies at least two different uh, squares in that schema. So that at the beginning of Marx's writings, he sees agent he sees Jews as agents and symbols of modernity, and so. Um, in that um, mm-hmm. they are an advanced group, um, and possibly they're going to be. We should all be scared because they're going to be bringing their kind of uh, threatening capitalism to dominate. Um, whereas in his later mature works, um, he takes the he he gets he's he can be placed in the. Back, Jews are backwards, and that is negative. He, of course, Marx is yeah, never well, in any you. I'm, of the positive quotes. Um, so um, I, I do uh, this seems think to be it, a pretty novel is, reading um, of Marx. So I, I wonder if you could a, explain to me a, a little bit to, about how you about
0: read Marx. These two uh, usually, when people write about Marx and Jews, the focus is always on the on the early work, and in particular. Um, his very early essay uh, "Zur Judenfrage" on, on the Jewish question, and uh, so that's a well-known essay. Um, it's it's a painful essay to read, as as you know, as anybody who's read that essay knows, because uh, Marx is uh, employing all kinds of anti-Semitic imagery, uh, in, in that essay for his own purposes, uh, and uh, it's mm-hmm. it's some pretty vicious and ugly uh, imagery that he uses there. Uh, but essentially, he is identifying Jews in that essay as um, the sort of uh, source of a a modern commercial and money economy that is alienating uh, and that must be overcome. And uh, so that's really where the focus of a lot of the writing about Marx, Jews, and Judaism is. Um, the assumption is that sort of Jews drop out of Marx's later work and his mature work when he's, uh, when he's, you know, turned away from the sort of philosophical themes of alienation. And he's now, you know, sort of interested in the historical origins of capitalism and understanding the inner logic and dynamics of uh, the capitalist mode of production. He, he's no longer thinking about Jews and, um, I try to show that that's not quite right that there is uh, still a substantial uh, number of references to Jews in that later work, but I also try to show as you as you indicated that there's an important shift in Marx's thinking and uh, so the the shift is that um, from being um, from from being uh, sort of the vanguard of a modern commercial or money economy. Uh, now, Jews, through uh, their their role, their economic roles and historical roles uh, as merchants uh, and as um, Marx would say usurers, uh, that they sort of lay the foundations uh, for a modern capitalist mode of production uh, but but uh, it 's a mode of production that they make possible but which they don 't exemplify it um, it It moves beyond them and actually uh, comes to uh, subordinate their activities. Uh, to modern capital in a way, so it's uh, it becomes a story of um, not of uh, uh, capitalism as as, as a sort of a process of Judaizing, but instead it becomes a you know process of supersession. Um, Jews play a role in developing it, but are in some ways superseded by the thing that they make possible.
1: Yeah, what another kind of surprising twist that you give us is that that really becomes even more clear and understandable that that those two different possibilities that Marx embodies um both the judaization and the supersession when you think of it as um uh, both as kind of christian ideologies a part of the christian theology and it's really interesting to see that marxist supersessionism can be mapped onto christian supersessionism and that not only that um you take it even further and you see you show how the four, five, the four German thinkers that you look at, including um, Weber and Sombart and uh, Marx and they, um, and Simmel, they all uh, kind of choose one of these two Christian motifs, Christian schemas, either Judaiza- Judaization, or Supersessionism, um, and I, yeah, that, so. Yeah, so I, you know, what I try to show in that chapter is that there there is this pattern to how not just Marx, but but these
0: other uh, key German social thinkers describe the relationship between Jews and and modern capitalism, and that there are basically two two, uh, variations of this pattern, um, uh, which we've been talking about. So so you can sort of see Marx as uh, laying the tracks on which uh, subsequent Uh, social thought about Jews and modern capitalism and the German context proceeds. And so what I try to show is that these later thinkers, people like Georg Zemmel, People like Werner Zombard, people like Max Weber, um, while they differ in lots of important respects from Marx in terms of how they think about modern capitalism, one of the things that they have in common is that they're proceeding along one or the other track that Marx, Marx's own thinking had laid down earlier. And so then the question becomes: Well, if there is this pattern, uh, how do we explain that pattern? And I try to, sh- I try to argue, I try to show there that uh, ultimately it has a kind of theological root uh, that that there is a. Uh, a way in which these two descriptions these these two possible ways of thinking about the relationship between Jews and modern capitalism parallel uh the um the discourse and and um, uh, christian theology uh discourses of Ising on the one hand something that david nuremberg has uh, written about um, uh very well in his book anti judaism uh, or um, discourses of supersession right and uh so i you know i, I wouldn't say that it is uh, it's something that's uh, conscious or not fully conscious at least uh but i try to show how uh, all of these thinkers are exposed in one way or another, um, uh, at least indirectly, to uh, some of these theological and religious uh, notions uh, through their education, uh, and uh, that these sort of end up um, reappearing in secularized form uh, in their in their writings about Jews and modern capitalism.
1: Yeah, so maybe you could tell us in how that shows up specifically in Weber, because, you know, of course, Weber is known for understanding Protestantism. Yeah. But not necessarily for deploying Protestant or sure, Christian yeah. schemas Weber's in a really his own thought, uh, uh, and yet you show he, how there's course, a Protestant supersessionism uh, that goes on with the development Weber's of modern uh, uh, rational, rational capitalism. Uh, uh, so he wrote an if you entire book about expe- Judaism, of course, ancient
0: Judaism, and, um, and 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 Jews play Jews and Judaism play actually a really central role in his own thinking about how we end up uh, where we where we do uh, with the sort of modern rational capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, he really sees Judaism as a, um, as, a as a decisive influence, uh, being a source in some ways of the economic rationalism that um, he's interested in explaining, but uh, also um, for a variety of reasons, uh, not really being able to complete the path that 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 it begins. And so, uh, what he argues essentially. Uh, is that it is Christianity, and um, in particular uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation, Reformation Christianity in its Protestant form, um, that in a way completes the process of rationalization that begins with Judaism, uh, and, is, and, and is able to do it. He thinks Judaism is not able to do, um, and uh, part of why he thinks that that that's so is that um, uh, he sees Christianity as. Um, a more universalistic kind of religion, and Judaism as more closed and particularistic. So already in his analysis of the two religions he's he's relying on an old trope, uh, an old sort of uh, Christian theological trope that Judaism is a particularistic religion, and uh, Christianity is a, is a religion. It's a universal religion is for everyone that promises universal salvation, not just uh, a religion for the Jewish people. Um, so he's 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 making use of um, tropes in his analysis that have a kind of theological and religious origin. And his analysis uh, is one in which and um, uh, in, in which, uh, in a way, the kind of the kind of economic rationality and the kinds of economic activities that um, uh, that, that Judaism makes possible are ultimately superseded, I would say, uh, by a kind, a different kind of capitalism that has its roots in Protestant asceticism.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how like his. You've said that the sociolog- sociologists, they're not just scientists, they have a practical program. Each one of them, in a sense, is arguing for a way forward um, and not just a diagnosis of, of the past. And it's interesting here how Durkheim, in sympathy with the position of Jews, um, ends up not really uh, touting a definite universalism, but he seems to find
0: reasons yeah, I- and
1: ways to bring a little bit of that Particularistic, I, I think that's right. And um, that's,
0: and, and you've picked up on, uh, on one of the themes or one of the threads, I think, that runs throughout the book, which is um,
1: modern this
0: uh, relationship between particularism and universalism, um, which is, uh, which is doesn't. very often formulated, discussed and thought um, uh, in terms of, 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 of Jews and Christians uh, and um, and one of the things I do like about Durkheim's uh, thinking, and one respect in which I, I prefer it to Max Weber's thinking, is, is precisely the point that you made. That I, I think, and again, not everybody would uh, maybe fully agree with this interpretation of Durkheim, but I try to show that that Durkheim uh, is um, trying to formulate a middle ground between a, a kind of complete assimilation into French society, in which Jewish uh, identity would be utterly lost. Um, and uh, a kind of, um, you know, on the one hand and a, a, on, on the other hand, a, you know, a, a kind of attachment to um, a sort of particularism that um, doesn't allow for, for broader or more universal commitments. He's trying to uh, to to think about um, what would be necessary for people to to really have both to kind of eat their cake and have it, too. And um, and, and he in his case, he's thinking about that in terms, as I said, in terms of uh, civil religion. Uh, this is a point, by the way. I should say that uh, Deborah Dash Moore made uh, years ago and a, a terrific article about uh, uh, Durkheim and uh, and his 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 thinking his, his thinking about Jewishness and about the revolution. So I'm trying to build on Deborah Dash Moore's work here uh, and show how this concern that she identifies um, uh, really uh, helps to uh, explain a lot of features of his sociological um, his sociological work.
1: That brings me to kind of one of the points that you're making towards the end, another binary that you set up, um, which is a binary that, again, Jews can embody both sides of, this idea of Jews as both um, Orientals and Occidentals, and uh, usually in the worst sense. Um, so, mm-hmm. and I think that also has to do with kind of the Oriental kind of tribalist um, archaic mode versus the Occidental imperialist mode. Um it's the imperialism being the kind of negative form of universalism. Um, and Jews can stand as the, the projection of the negative aspects of both of these things. Um, um, and you argue that there are yeah, who, so I in the last chapter of the book, I really wanted to engage with uh, think some of the
0: scholarship of, anti-semitism on Orientalism as a form of, of Orientalism as it as it uh, pertains but to, to add Jews. add that, in fact, it's and, not just uh,
1: Orientalism, And this idea it's, that,
0: it's that anti-Semitism so, can best be understood uh, a as, as, a kind of, as, a, as a variant, as a form of Orientalism, I think can be traced back to Edward Said. Um, it's been picked up by a lot of scholars since then. And there is something to it. I mean, you if you look at the historical record, there are lots of instances in which, in the European context, at least, um, Jews are getting positioned as, as sort of an oriental presence within uh, Europe. Um, so, uh, for example, one of many examples that um, I reference in the book, um, the great German philosopher Immanuel Kant describes uh, German Jews as the Palestinians living among us. And uh, so, so you know, th- this is an expression that, that sort of um, tags tags Jews as, as a kind of oriental presence in the Occident, right? And so, so that's there is a way in which there is some truth to that, but I think it is uh, really partial because it, it leaves out um, all of the ways in which Jews have also been positioned um, as the carriers and um uh, proponents of a, of a kind of, uh, Western modernity and rationality. Um, and so, uh, we talked about some of that already and the context of, um, uh, German discussions about the origins of modern capitalism and, um, uh, and also in the French and American cases, you see sort of, um, examples of this. So, so what I try to suggest is that one of the ways that depictions of Jews differ from depictions of, uh, colonial subjects uh, is that um, that that Jews um, are, are, are sort, of, sort of end up getting depicted in this Janus faced way that uh, in this inconsistent way as both um, as both symbols of uh, oriental backwardness and uh, symbols of uh, kind of uh, Western um, um, you know modernity uh, and uh, that this is something this is something quite distinctive, actually. Uh, and and again, this goes back to where we started uh, about the historical relationship between Jews and Christians uh, being the key to understanding the, the inconsistent ways that Jews have been described historically. What I try to suggest is that that historical relationship between Jews and Christians is not one of antagonism so much as one of ambivalence, and so that ambivalence then gets um, reflected in, um, uh, uh, in in this way, and in the, in the sort of multiple and inconsistent ways that Jews get described and positioned in terms of these dualisms and dichotomies.
1: Right, it's pretty. It's a great argument because you can clearly see there how yes Jews were considered in a kind of orientalist framework but the fact that they can also be considered in an occidentalist framework makes them so thinkable and makes and and that ambivalence allows people to think through all the various themes that they're ambivalent about through the uh, refraction of the Jew and for example you say that um, Mm -hmm. when Europeans European ethnographic right. discourse depicts colonial subjects as really one way. It's, there's no ambivalence. Their sad racist ideas were that these colonial subjects were ignoble savages, sometimes noble savages, but they were always savages. I think that's right. Yeah. And Whereas again, it's, it's the Jews the, could uh, kind of you occupy if, if both try sides. To and
0: therefore, you could talk um, these, about
1: savagery uh, and intellectuality and over-intellectuality on always on
0: some features and uh, through the person of, the of the Jews Jew. as a group to understand this. Um, or we could say that it's rooted in the relationship, this historical relationship between Jews and Christians, which then becomes, and this is a very Levi-Straussian way, a kind of code uh, for describing thinking about the relationship between tradition and modernity.
1: Mm-hmm. yes and that's what we're all continuing to have to think about i think these days maybe the conversation moves a little more into the realm of uh, economics yeah. and capitalism I mean, that's what than, i tried to uh, uh, argue at the end of the book. And, nationality, although um, that, and 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 you know i'm glad citizenship that you raised this uh, important and different uh, misimpression discourses i would want to these discourses continue to be relevant know, so and as you say the Jews continue to be central to these discourses to
0: to do so it is a it is a historical book it is a book about um, uh, the history of social thought and the the uh, role of Jews and Judaism uh, as objects of social thought uh, and um, but it 's not only a historical book because I think this history, uh, as you suggested, extends into the present and this is part of my mo- this was was part of my motivation for writing the book. It seemed to me that um, the 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 sorts of patterns that uh, I, that are historical patterns that I describe uh, through the most of the body of the book um, that these have not entirely disappeared um, and that these um, can still be found today uh, can uh, sometimes they take slightly new or slightly different forms but they're still recognizable and um, you know what bothered me uh, you know as as I was working on this book and thinking about this is that uh, people, uh, engage in these patterns of thought um, without any clear understanding of their historical roots, uh, or the historical basis of these, of, of, these patterns. And, uh, and I thought, well, that, that's a problem. And, uh, and we should be, um, you know, we, we, in order to, 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 uh, really emancipate ourselves from the past, we have to understand the way that the past continues to shape, uh, contemporary thinking and practice. And so that's, uh, and, 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 part what I'm trying to do in the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. i makes me wonder exactly what patterns are you think are the most prominent state because what I would not think that. Your quadrant would be quite well, full today. So I don't think that people are often thinking that. about so, Jews as you know, backward or traditionalist. You know, and the I think most is of the, the time sort of, people are um, thinking about Jews as you know, interesting uh, a vanguard you know, of discussions a and discussions about globalism or uh, right, ultra-modernist where becomes you know um, uh,
0: associated with Jews. Uh, and so for, this is you know this you is a way of positioning that Jews like, once again. As uh, you know, as you suggested, as a as a vanguard of a kind of um, certain kind of modernity, in this case, uh, you know, for people who are anti-globalist, a kind of threatening modernity. Um, but I don't think that mm-hmm. the I, I don't think that yeah. the depiction of Jews as backward has 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 disappeared. So what I try to suggest um, uh, at the end of the book, and uh, I realize that this will be uh, this will be controversial. You, you, you can't you can't really say anything about uh, Israel and Zionism without <laughs> it being controversial. Um, what, yeah, what I try not. to suggest. is at the at the end of the book is that um and and in, in many ways uh Israel uh is is now described as a as uh, as a as a backwards state uh so by some of its fiercest critics who mm-hmm. uh who see Israel as embodying uh, a kind of ethno nationalism that um they suggest um other parts of the world western mm-hmm. europe in particular Um, Have overcome or surpassed. And um, I think these arguments were um, uh, were easier to make uh, five or 10 years ago. I think they're much harder to make now, actually, because if anything, what we see is a revival of ethno-nationalism. Uh, in Europe uh, and even in the United States now, I would argue. So uh, it's not at all clear that um, that this has been uh, sort of relegated to the dustbin of history.
1: Yeah, it seems to me it relates a little bit to Freud's idea of the narcissism of small differences. That because, in a sense, Jews are the cousins of Europe, um, they're more they're you can you can project or Europe Europe can project its guilt and its sins upon yeah, the, I think so. uh, upon Israel uh, and uh, more than and, and they and once again the historical
0: relationship between Judaism in China
1: or um, comes
0: to um, or, you know, it becomes a historical basis of minorities in Saudi uh, Arabia closer, because their close because their contemporary social and political that, discourse um, uh, can be identified without people people really realizing it or fully realizing it and uh, so this is this is um, you know, ultimately, this is uh, an insight that uh, I take from Pierre Bourdieu. Bourdieu made the point that uh, an opposition uh, like the one between uh, culture and civilization, for instance, culture and civilization, um, that this this you know we think of this as a conceptual dualism, but uh, he made the point that actually this has a historical basis in the opposition between France and Germany, uh, where France um, uh, signified civilization and Germany of course signified culture. Um, you know I thought Bourdieu was right about that, but um, uh, it seemed to me that this historical, Relationship between Jews and Christians, uh, in a similar way, became the basis for all kinds of uh, dualisms and oppositions in social thought, including in contemporary debates about um, about globalism, about uh, Israel, about Zionism, and so on. And uh, so, once again, there is a there's a way in which it's it is it's not an accident that um, that, that Israel becomes a focus of a lot of this discussion.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I wanted to just wrap it up by reading, if you don't mind, a couple of lines from the last couple pages of your book, which I think were are really wonderful summaries of what you've been arguing, which is um, you write, the Jews or the Jewish state still serve as an intermediary for self-reflection in our time. And you write, whether as the chief threat to modern values or as the Protestantification of them, Jews are repeatedly placed at the sacred center of society. Then you write, the problem is that repeatedly placing Jews at the sacred center renders them prime targets in ongoing conflicts over society's sacred ideals, images, and symbols, even when Jews may be peripheral to those conflicts or have little real influence over David, them. David,
0: thank you so much. I, so I really appreciate the introduction. That opportunity was to a, a, a wonderful takeaway very, from your book, much. and I
1: really enjoyed reading it. And I thank you very much for your time. So, we've been reading, we've been talking with uh, Professor Chad Allen Goldberg, who has written Modernity and the Jews in Western Social Thought which has just come out from Chicago Press thank you for being here